son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. We've, uh, we finished up our series um, last week on, uh, man, I already forgot. What was it? Secret, uh, secrets of the, unlocking the secrets of the Christian life. <laughs> After a while, this, you know, they all like, all the series and sermons, they, get, they start to blur together. And uh, so it was, a, it was a really good series. Unfortunately, uh, we didn't get it, the last Sunday's message recorded, but, uh, but we did record our, our Grace Deep Dive podcast and talked about it and those things, so, so you can go back and listen. We're starting a new series, The Last Days of Jesus. Um, it's going to be a, a really fun series, and it's leading us up, of course, to Easter, where we will celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Um, we are going to, a lot of people will, will start... Um, you know, they'll kind of start, if they're going to do a series like this, they'll start like on Sunday, Palm Sunday, and kind of work through the last week of Jesus. Quite frankly, there's just too much material. And so we're going to, we're going to start on like Tuesday. <laughs> so instead of starting on Sunday, we're going to start on Tuesday, the last week of Jesus. We're going to work our way uh, through, through the last things that Jesus said and taught and did. Um, and so it's going to be a really great series. I hope you guys are looking forward to it um, as, as we kind of approach Easter and, I, and, and my prayer is that, is that as we think about the last things that Jesus said and did, uh, that, that Easter will, will take on new and deeper meaning for us um, this year. So uh, let's, uh, I know we just prayed for Kelly, but that was separate. I want to pray for our time uh, looking into God's word. So let's, let's do that, and then, we'll, and then we'll get going. Dear God, thank you so much, again, for your word. We, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the things that he taught, the things that he said, the things that he did. Uh, Lord, as we look into those last days of Jesus, I pray that your spirit would empower our minds to understand well. Uh, Lord, that your spirit would empower our hearts to have the willingness to, to grab and, and, and apply and embrace Jesus' teaching for each one of us and for us to collectively as the body of Christ. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you remember the day you moved out of your house? I mean, your parents' house. Do you remember that day? I remember that day pretty well, I think. And uh, I was headed off to college, and uh, I, was, I was going about three hours north of where I lived, and that's where I was going to go to college, and I was excited. Um, it wasn't so much about going to college. That, that was exciting, I suppose, but it was more like leaving mom and dad's home, you know. It was that, I was excited about that. I was excited to get out of the house. I don't, I don't know how, what your experience may have, may have been like, but uh, my last, uh, certainly last year at home, maybe more than that, was, there was a lot of this going on. And uh, there's a lot of heads butting, there was a lot of uh, conflict uh, between myself and my parents, and it wasn't really their fault, it was really, I think, in, in many ways it was a natural occurrence. It was that thing that happens when you're, you know, when you're kids, and, and I don't know if I knew that at the time, I know it now, having, having had a daughter that has left the house, and uh, grown up and left the house, but that, that conflict was important in, in some ways to, to kind of cut the apron strings, uh, strings a little bit and, and, uh, and, and make that separation between myself and my mom and dad. But it was, a, it was a hard day in a lot of ways, probably not so much for me. I was excited. Let's go. Let's go up to college. Let's move into the dorm. Let's, all that stuff. I was thrilled. I couldn't wait. My parents probably weren't in that place. I, I thought I, I, I knew all I needed to know. Like, I was like, I'm ready. I'm ready to go out in the world. I'm, I'm a pretty smart guy, you know, I thought at the time. And now I realize how dumb I was and still am in many ways, right? But I thought I, I, thought I kind of had the world by the tail. I was going to go to college. I had no idea how I was going to pay for college. Like, that would have been good to think about. 
But, uh, you know, I, was gonna, I, didn't know, I didn't know a whole bunch of stuff. But I was excited, and I was, I was headed off to college. And, of course, you know, many, 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 many years later, now having raised a daughter and uh, in the process of raising a son and having sent my daughter off, and she only went three miles away, not three hours away, uh, to call her a Christian. And it was, and even those last you know, that last year, but especially even those last months and, and even those last weeks and days as we kind of approached that day when she would move away, the things that came into my mind as dad were, oh my goodness, I have failed as a father. I mean, that's, that's a lot of what I thought. I thought there are so many things that I did not teach my daughter well, I thought. And she's going to go out into the world, even though it's only three miles away, but it seems like distance doesn't really matter at that point. It's just out of the house. And, and, and I was so concerned that she was going to be able to get, get by in life, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, all the little things that I felt like I had failed in, in teaching her and preparing her for. And uh, so what you do is you do what any normal person does. You try to cram years and years worth of fathering into like three days right? She probably hated my guts for those three days, you know. And I think that sometimes that's what we have in Jesus. Not so much that he failed. I don't think he failed, at, right? But he did, there was this sense as he approached the last days of his life, and he had spent three years with the disciples, and he had invested in them, and taught them, and, and in a sense raised them, if you will, and in this preparation so that they would, they would go out and, and begin the church, and, and, I, and I can't imagine what he was thinking, knowing the things that they were going to face, knowing the problems that they were going to have, knowing the persecution that was waiting for them. And he must have been thinking, man, I need to tell them a few more things. There's some more things that I need to teach them and I need to remind them of before I go to the cross and die. And certainly he had some days after he rose from the dead. But then eventually he would go to be with the Father and he would no longer be with them. Of course, the Spirit would come. But there was that preparation kind of feeling, I think, likely in Jesus' mind. And in these last days, we find him teaching and doing things that I think are important. And as we look at what he did in his last days and the things he taught as the cross awaited him, I think that we will find that it will help us in our approach to who Jesus is and what he's done, and why it matters. So we begin this series, and it will take us through Easter. And it's a little surreal to think about what Jesus was doing and thinking those last few days. But he took that time to teach his disciples. So as we approach Easter, my hope is that we will have a renewed and a deeper appreciation for Resurrection Sunday as it comes. And in the process, Jesus will, will have much to say to us regarding the kingdom of God, how we live what we look back on and what we look forward to. So Sunday, a week before Easter, and we'll celebrate this when Palm Sunday comes. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, right? He's riding the donkey and everybody's singing his praises. He enters as a king. And it's amazing how everyone is excited and, and he'd had these three years of ministries and ministry and done all of these amazing things and, and, and they welcome him and, and, and it must have been an affront and it certainly was an affront to the authorities of the day. That here's this, here's this guy, this carpenter, this nobody and yet look at him, he's being welcomed almost as a king and that happens on Sunday and then, and then Monday comes and, and Jesus curses a fig tree and that's not, 
coincidental. It's not something that's mentioned by accident. The fig tree often represents the nation of Israel, and there was definitely something going on there as Jesus curses this this fig tree, and then he goes to the temple, and he, and he turns over the tables of the money changers, and, 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 and says, hey, this is a house of prayer, and kind of causes a stir, so he goes from, being, from entering Jerusalem as a king, being received as a king, to turning over money changer, the money changers' ta- tables, disrupting the culture, disrupting the practices in the temples, in the temple, and then Tuesday, the fig tree would be found withered, and Jesus would interact with the religious authorities of his day who questioned his authority. By what authority are you doing all of these things? And he would have all these interactions. And he also taught about the kingdom of God through parables and other teacher teachings. And we pick up in Matthew chapter 24 with Jesus', Jesus teaching what's often called the Olivet Discourse. And that's where we're going to start on Tuesday. He taught this commonly referred to passages the Olivet Discourse. In large part, the teaching focuses the disciples beyond what was happening that weekend, the coming weekend, and the previous weekend. It, 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 it focuses their eyes on something that is beyond his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And something was about to change in their culture, and it was going to be significant. Jesus was going to be the center of their religious life. And Jesus is the center of our religious life. Well, we must understand that in the first century, the temple was the center of everything. It was, it was a huge, huge place. It was about, uh, the, where the Temple Mount was, the, the temple was about 35 acres of land. It covered about 35 acres of land, the whole, the whole thing. And th- think about that's a uh, That's about 26 football fields. That we're all kind of, you put them all next to each other. And that was kind of the temple. That was the area that it, that it covered. And this is Herod's temple. It's second temple period. And, and, so, and so everything that happened in Jerusalem happened surrounding their practices at the temple. Everybody went there all the time. It was where their social life was. It was certainly where their religious life was. It was the center of every aspect of their life. People would go there day by day and there were... There were sacrifices constantly going on, and of course there was worship on the Sabbath day and different things like that. It was the center of everything. There was no Jewish life without it. It was a huge place. You know, I went to Israel last summer in, in July, and, and it, was ama- it was an amazing trip. But one of the things I noticed was this, that we, we stayed in Tel Aviv for the most part. And while we were there, uh, you know, Saturday uh, or Friday night comes along, and basically everything shuts down. Like everything. This is not, I wasn't even in Jerusalem. I was in Tel Aviv, which is considered a, a more of a modern city. You know, it was, it was, it's, it's not like Jerusalem in, in so many ways. There's a gigantic cultural difference between Tel Aviv and, and Jerusalem. And, and we were staying at, at, the, at a hotel. And, and here's what happens at this hotel there's a couple elevators that starting, as soon as, as, soon as the Sabbath starts, the elev- elevators simply stop at every single floor. Every, every floor. You, go in, you walk into that elevator, and you don't push any buttons or anything like that. And these were really nice elevators. Matter of fact, I've never quite seen anything like them. They had these, like, pads, like iPad type of pads outside them as you kind of walk up, and you, and you hit your floor, and, and apparently it figured out which elevator, and it told you, go to elevator C, and then you'd walk over to elevator C, and you'd get on elevator C and go up. 
And so that's how it usually worked. And so whatever the, the programming was, it would figure out how to, how to manage that, and which elevators should go where and all these things. But on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, two of the elevators would stop at every single floor. And the whole purpose was this, so that as people, as people walked up, as, as our, our Jewish brothers and sisters walked up and, um, you know, they didn't have to push the button because it was a Sabbath and that was too much work. And so it was, they were trying to avoid work and, and they have very, very strict rules about this. And so literally, that is, so it wasn't to the kid. It wasn't like the, the nine-year-old who went, I'm gonna go push every button, make the elevator, right? It was actually intentionally to make it so that wherever they were staying in the hotel, they could not have to push the button and do work on the Sabbath. The whole thing shuts down. The whole town shuts down on, on the Sabbath. I had to do some laundry that day, and, and man, I, let me tell you, every laundromat, I, I didn't think about this ahead of time, and so every, every laundromat I, I could find was closed except for one. I found one laundromat that I could go to and wash some clothes. And that was kind of the culture, right? It's a different kind of culture there. Everything surrounded the temple. Everything surrounded the Jewish practices that, that took place there. Well, on this day, it wasn't the Sabbath, but it was Tuesday. And it was, it was, it was the week of Passover, and, and, and the disciples and Jesus, they were at, they were at the temple. Or, and, uh, and, and Matthew picks up this story, and he begins to talk about what happened, starting in verse 1, Matthew chapter 24. And it says this, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him, came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. These things that Jesus was talking about, it was the temple. Now remember how big that place was. 35 acres. Now the the, you know, the, not, it wasn't all buildings, it was a, a, a large courtyard, and there was an outer court, which everybody could go into, and then there was another court that only Jews could go into, and then another place where only priests could go into, and then there was the Holy of Holies where only the high priests could go into, and, 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 and so it kind of had these layers to it, that as you got closer and closer to the center, only certain people were allowed, but the whole thing, Jesus says, look, the whole thing, not one stone here is going to be left untouched, it's all going to be overturned, the whole thing is going to be destroyed. You can imagine what a stir that might have caused the disciples as they were walking away, thinking about how big this was. And, and Jesus is literally saying, the center of what it means, the very thing of what it means to be Jewish, that whole thing is going to be destroyed. The thing that was the center of their life, it was the center of their religious life, it was the center of almost every aspect of their life, that thing was going to be destroyed. And Jesus would go on teaching. The Olivet Discourse, in my opinion, is widely misunderstood in many ways. Many think that the things Jesus describes as he begins to teach the disciples are precursors to his coming, and in some ways they are, I suppose. But a lot of people will pick up Matthew chapter 24, and they will grab the newspaper, and they'll start to, to read, and they'll start to compare things, and and, and really what Jesus is actually preparing them for is not, is not a, a short time of things that will happen before he returns, but a whole bunch of things that will happen over a long period of time that will be just part of life. And he begins to teach and he talks about things like wars and, and rumors of wars. 
And he talks about false messiahs, and he, and he talks about all of these things that will happen. But they are not, if you read carefully, the sign of Jesus' return. He says these things are going to happen. This is going to be part of life. But that's not the signs of the end. That's not what we're looking forward to. A lot of times I think, I, and I hear this often uh, with Christians, a lot of times they'll talk about, wow, things are getting so bad. It must mean Jesus is going to come. But that's actually not what he teaches here. He teaches, he teaches here that things are going to be bad. There's going to be wars, and there's going to be rumors of wars, and there's going to be false messiahs and false teachers, and they're going to come, and they're going to attempt to lead the, the, the followers of Jesus astray. And this is going to be kind of the part of the way things are. But that's not the end, if you read carefully. As a matter of fact, we, we see all of these things happening within the first century. And instead, all of these things, including, by the way, the destruction that Jesus just talked to the disciples about, happened by 70 AD. It happened in the first century. The Romans would come in and, 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 and destroy the temple in 70 AD. It would be completely destroyed. The very center of which religious life counted on for the Jews would be destroyed. As a matter of fact, as you read the text, it talks about people you know, just leaving and, and, and he even tells them you, you should hope that the women are not pregnant or it doesn't happen on the Sabbath because it's going to be this hard retreat. And, and you have a lot of these kinds of things happening, 68, 69 AD, and then the ultimate destruction of the temple happening in 70 AD. And the Jews fled very much prior to that in many of the same ways that Jesus describes in this text. What it meant was all that needed to happen for Jesus' return happened in that generation. In other words, that all the things that have happened that are necessary in order for Jesus to come back, they're done. That's why every generation since that first generation could rightly say, Jesus could return at any moment. We say that a lot, don't we? We anticipate his coming. It's imminent. It could happen right now. All these things would happen, and, and all these things have in many ways, continue to happen. There have been wars, and there have been rumors of wars, and there have been false teachers, and there have been false messiahs, and all these things have, have come along and, and still happen on a day-to-day basis. In other words, God experiences time differently than we do. He says that, that Jesus will return soon, but what he means by that is that the things that are necessary to happen have happened now, or will happen soon when Jesus said it, because some of them were still to happen, and he, would, he said the, all these things will happen soon, and then... And then, but to God, a thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand years. And some of you might look back and go, well, it's been almost 2,000 years. Like, when is, when is soon? When is soon? What does that look like? But God experiences time different than we do. But Jesus said something more about the destruction of the temple and its rebuilding in John chapter uh, 2. Starting in verse 18, he says this, The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this, right? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. In other words, the temple was once the center of all of religious life for the Jews. 
But now it would be destroyed, and there would be kind of a, 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 both a symbolic fulfilling of that and a real literal fulfilling, right? The temple would literally be destroyed in 70 AD, but Jesus' body was the temple. In other words, he would take on the place of that temple. It would be destroyed, but he would rebuild it through his resurrection in three days. In other words, Jesus became the center of, the religious, of, of religious life. In other words, it wasn't about the temple anymore. As a matter of fact, if you go to, if you go to Israel now, you know, you know what's on the temple, where the temple used to be? A Muslim mosque. That's what's there. It's, it's no longer the, the, a Jewish temple. It's, it's, a, it's a Muslim mosque. It's Dome of the Rock. It's, it's pretty famous. If you saw it, you go, oh, yeah, I've seen pictures of that. It's got a nice big gold like dome on top of it, right? That's where the temple used to be. That's where, where that used to be. And, so, and, and the temple's not there anymore. But the good news is we don't need the temple. The Jews don't need the temple. They don't need the sacrifices that took place there anymore. Jesus became all of that for them. That's why, that's why when we gather together, we have a building. We're, 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 we're lucky, we're blessed to have this building to be able to gather together and worship but we use a certain language around here right like a lot of times at the end johnny will say something like this and and you know as he kind of prays us out he'll say something like like as we become grace scattered or we become the church scattered right in other words when we walk outside of this building we don't cease to be the church because the church isn't a building but in the first century if you would have asked a jew about judaism the temple would have been so important that's that's, that's where everything that is important takes place. God's presence was literally considered to be in the Holy of Holies, the very center of that temple. That's where God was. But now we don't have that and we don't need it. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was in the Holy, Holy of Holies was torn top to bottom. In other words, we have access. And, and Jesus, when he went back to be with the Father, sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lives with us and empowers us day by day, God is present in each one of our lives, and he's present wherever we go. The temple was fulfilled by the person of Jesus. He would be the temple. He would become the center of religious life, not the temple, not the Sabbath, not all that other stuff. Jesus is the center of all of it, and that's why we talk about Jesus constantly. Hopefully, I wear your ears out talking about Jesus. It's my goal to wear your ears out. It's why we pray in Jesus' name. It's why we constantly and unendingly talk about him. He's the center of our life. He would, in a few days from that point, become the sacrifice, and there would be no need for the temple, no need for further sacrifice. The price would be paid, and we would look forward to the end, and the end to his return. But here's something else. It's just a few days before he would go to the cross. Just a few days. It's Tuesday. Friday comes and he's going he's gonna to be hung on a cross. And, and, and that's just a few days. He knows it. He knows the end is coming. But he also knows the end will come. And by the end, I don't mean the end of his life. I mean the new heavens and the new earth. The, the end will come. 
the end of that is a beginning to something else. It will come. It's amazing to me to think that Jesus takes his time in Matthew chapter 24 as, he, as, he, as they cross, they go from the temple and they, and they go across the Kidron Valley to the east and they go up to, up to the um, um, Mount Olive and, and they kind of settle there and, and you can look across from Mount Olive. You look to the west and, and, that, and they would see, they would, this whole Olivet Discourse would take place within sight of the Temple Mount. They would see the whole thing. They sit slightly elevated above it, and they, they could see everything that was there. They would see the temple. They would see all that was going on. And Jesus said they had gone from that one place to the other. And, and, and then they asked this, this question, okay, Jesus, when is this all going to happen? This thing you tell me, when's it going to happen? And that's when Jesus starts to talk about the end. He doesn't talk about what's going to take place on Friday. He looks beyond Friday when he will die. He looks beyond Sunday when he will be res- resurrected. He looks beyond that, and he begins to talk about the end, which is the beginning of something new. He begins to talk about his return to set up his kingdom. He begins to talk about those things, and he, and he talks about all these things that they will experience in the meantime. And we often complain about how bad things are getting and make the mistake of thinking our perception of how bad things are is what will bring about the return of Jesus. That's a mistake. Our perception of how bad things are doesn't tell us anything about the return of Jesus. As a matter of fact, that's kind of Jesus' point. G.K. Chesterton, the famed uh, 20th century author, said this, He said, it is only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head. And not unnaturally, his head bursts. The wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. Let that sink in for a second. I think that's important sometimes when it comes to these end times kind of discussions. We try to figure it all out. We try to get all of that inside our head, right? Maybe we draw up a nice chart. I'm not against charts, by the way. Charts can be great, right? But we, you've, you've probably seen them if you've been around the church for a while. There's a chart, and we got a timeline, and then we go, okay, here's when that's going to happen. And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, maybe we take the bowls of, in, in, in Revelation, we start to break them down, and we think, oh, that's when that's going to happen. That's talking about this kingdom and this kingdom, and that, that's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, here's where Jesus is going to return. And we've got our nice little chart that where we've taken to, our, to the best of our ability, all of Scripture, and kind of laid it out on our chart, and God, oh, we got it figured out. And then every once in a while, you get somebody who comes along, and they think they, they go back to like the weeks of Daniel, this passage in Daniel that talks about all these you know, 70 weeks that are going to happen, and they, they do the math, and it's amazing how many times they go back and how the math always turns out different. It's, uh, it blows my mind. I'm like, I'm like, they're just numbers. Like, don't, shouldn't they always turn out the same? But they, and they come up with some date and they go, oh, we figured it out. Jesus is going to return. He's going to return on September 30th because that's my birthday and it's a great day. And he's going to come that day because I did, the, I did the math on the weeks in Daniel. That's when Jesus is going to come back. And then they, they go and they like sell everything they own and they, they buy a camper or something so they can go to this place because they always got the place figured out too. I'm always blown away by that. And it's always in America. I can't, I don't understand weird right and then and then they get all ready for jesus return and 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 they they, they buy their nice you know white whatever it is suit robe whatever and they're gonna wait on maybe they go up and they're gonna go i'm gonna i'm it's 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 gonna be in colorado and it's gonna be tallest point so it's gonna be mount elbert i'm gonna go up to mount elbert i'm gonna gonna climb it with my white 
which will no longer be white by the time you get to the top. But anyways, then I'm going to climb in, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to just wait for Jesus because he's coming on that day, and then, then the day comes and the day goes, and what happens? He doesn't come. How many times does that happen? Over and over and over and over and over. I got a book this thick. I'm not kidding you. Filled with months and years, and you can look it up any year and all these months, and it tells of all these different people who have who've come up with this idea. It's down in my office, and you can look it up, and it, that's when Jesus is coming. Cults have been started this way. Multiple cults have been started this way. Jesus is going to come, but here's what Jesus says when he talks to the disciples. He says in verse 36 of Matthew 24, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. The end will come. It will come. When God is ready, it's not our job to figure it out, but to persevere. As a matter of fact, here's what he says. He jumped back up towards more the middle of the chapter. It says this in verse 12 and 13. It says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, look, there's going to be wickedness. There is going to be an increase in that wickedness. The end will come. But it's the one who stands firm to the end that will be saved. In other words, he's prepping his disciples, not so much for what will happen that weekend, but he's beyond that going and saying, look, there's going to come difficult times. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be false teachers. There's going to be false messiahs. All of these things are going to happen. And you need to be ready because it's going to take perseverance. You're going to have to stand firm till the end. That's... The one who will be saved, the end will come, will come. So stand firm, persevere, stay the course, don't get confused. I fear that we are often confused. There are false prophets in our culture. There are false teachers in our culture. There's, there are those who want to soften sin and make it not such a big deal. And some of them are leading churches. In part, the increase of wickedness takes place when false teachers and preachers soften the impact of the reality of sin. We have to understand sin is real. And our need for redemption is real. Our need for Jesus is real. That's why he became the temple. He became the sacrifice that we might be redeemed and forgiven. Clarity on sin is important. We must stay the course and persevere in our faith, staying true to the word of God. We find in this passage a description of all the things on the prophetic calendar that happened in the first century. All these things, all, as a matter of fact, when, when Jesus says all these things will happen before your generation passes, he's talking about all these things, these wars and rumors of wars and all that stuff. It's all going to happen, all these things. The prophetic calendar will be full to the point where Jesus' return could happen at any time after that. And now we, we wait, and we persevere, and we stand firm, and we look forward, waiting for Jesus to return on his prophetic chart, not ours. That's why Jesus said this in verse 42. He said, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. He's repeated that idea, hasn't he? 
But understand this, if the owner of a house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. By the way, so if we, can, if we get a chart, we have our chart, we have our weeks of Daniel, we do our math, we try to figure out where everything is, and then we have a date. That kind of defines Jesus coming back when we expect him, right? As opposed to when we don't expect him, doesn't it? So just stop it with the charts and the dates, okay? I'm not, again, charts are fine. It's, it's good to understand how the prophetic things will work out. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying as, as in regards to trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. The return of Jesus is imminent. And we should live every moment of every day as if Jesus could come in the next moment. But we should also realize and recognize that Jesus will return when he returns. It could be many more generations. So what do we take from all this? Here's what we ought to take from this passage. Live like Jesus is coming back today. But be prepared for eternity. Live like Jesus is coming back today, but be prepared for eternity. Even when Jesus knew the cross awaited him in just a few days. He knew that the disciples worlds were going to change. He knew that that they were going to go through this extremely difficult time. He knew that, that, that there was persecution coming for them. But what did he do? He took his eyes, he took their eyes, and he, and he set them on eternity future. He, ha- he helped them to look past the cross, past the resurrection. Not that those things were unimportant. They were essential. They were essential in God's redemptive plan as it unfolded. But he wanted them to have hope that was beyond that. When they saw Jesus dying on the cross, he wanted there to be some foundation, some teaching, something that they would understand that there is still an end and it will come. And that wasn't it. That wasn't the end. The end will come. There will be a new heavens and new earth. There will be a Jesus will return. But it's on his prophetic calendar, not ours. So what do we do? We persevere knowing that it could be many generations, but we also know that it could be in the next moment. It's ready. The time could be any time. So we must live like he could come back today, but be prepared for eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, you are good. And you are gracious. And you are holy. Lord, thank you for reminding us that you could come, you could return to set up your kingdom in the next minute. But also for reminding us that it's according to your calendar. A day is, is a thousand years, and a thousand years is, is a day, and, and it could be another two thousand years for all we know. We know that you know the day the time but Lord help us to persevere help us to live every moment of every day help us to raise our children with this in sight help us to go to our our job with this in sight help us to go to our schools with this understanding that you could return at any moment but we could live long full lives die of old age and you still might not return help us to be prepared for both scenarios 
We don't know when you will return, but we know that your spirit is with us. Lord, I just pray this morning as we, in a minute, take communion and remember what you did on the cross. Your body broken, your blood 